Greetings, superstars. Welcome back to Word Up with Danny Katz, your one-stop 5D superhero listening spot. I'm Danny Katz, transformation agent, empowered badassery coach, and quantum languaging consultant. And I'm so happy you're here. Here at Word Up, we are devoted to supporting you in becoming your most authentic, empowered, liberated version of yourself. We do this by sharing quantum languaging upgrades, conscious communication tools, witchy life hacks, planetary service announcements, and high-vibing, deep-diving conversations with original thinkers, visionary weirdos, and rebel badasses. Our every show aims to expand your consciousness, raise your frequency, sharpen your critical thinking skills, and make you giggle. <laughs> Be sure to hit that subscribe button and to join us on Locals at dannycats.locals.com where you can watch the video versions of all our episodes including those that are a little bit too spicy for the non-free speech friendly platforms. And it's also where paid subscribers can tune into the second half of all my interviews and enjoy a plethora of other bonuses, including live monthly Q&As, unpublished writings and videos, and behind the scenes intel. Join our quickly growing tribe of high vibe superstars at dannycats.locals.com. Okay, now that we've got all our housekeeping out of the way, let's enjoy today's episode of Word Up with Danny Katz. Today I am joined by Dr. Andrew Kaufman. Dr. Andrew Kaufman is a forensic psychiatrist, a medical doctor. He has a degree in biology from MIT. He's a public speaker. He's also one of the producers of the documentary Terrain. And I was really excited to talk to Dr. Kaufman about his path in the public eye over the past couple years, what's going on on the circuit with all the truth tellers and his bird's eye view of Western medicine, of science versus scientism, of what is chicken pox anyway in light of terrain theory. So we had a great conversation. We did have a little bit of technical difficulty towards the last part of the first half of our conversation, at which point we moved from video to audio only. So if you're watching this on YouTube or one of the video channels, uh, thank you for your patience in, in losing the real-time feed of our faces. And um, if you're listening, there's just a, a brief couple seconds of hiccup before we dive back into it. Before we jump into the episode, I'm reminding you to please hit that subscribe button and to like and to share. It really means the world in terms of getting my, my podcast up in the algorithms, up in the rankings, making sure other people find it. The first half of this episode, like the first half of all of my podcast episodes, is free for the public. You can find the second half on either my Patreon or my Locals, where paid subscribers get access to all of my second half podcast interviews, along with oodles of bonus content and monthly community calls with myself and our Word Up community, opportunities for one-on-one -on -one drop ins with me, and that wonderful altruistic feeling that comes when we support artists and content creators in sharing their genius with the world. So I encourage you to support me over on Patreon and or Locals. Why not and? Sharing is caring, caring is cool, abundance abounds. Thank you for sharing your abundance with me. I'm also going to urge you to sign up for my newsletter at dannycats.com. I have recently took, taken a massive leap away from social media, so the best way to keep abreast of my offerings as well as my forthcoming book drop 
is to track my newsletter at dannycats.com. When you sign up, you will get a free PDF, Five Quantum Languaging Hacks for Instant Empowerment. Okay, I think that does it for today's housekeeping. Buckle up and prepare to enjoy my conversation with Dr. Andrew Kaufman. Welcome back. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for another episode of Word Up with Danny Katz. Today, it is my pleasure and honor to be joined by MD, forensic psychiatrist, public speaker, inventor, documentary producer, truth teller extraordinaire, Dr. Andrew Kaufman. Andrew, how are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, I, I really appreciated you and I connected very early on during the, the pandemic. I believe it was March of, of 2020 and kind of were helping me clear up some things and get clear on some of the sciences when I was doing some research for a documentary. And I really appreciated how open and generous you were with your time. So I, I definitely wanted to acknowledge you for that. Oh, well, thank you so much. Yeah. So I'm curious about your path. I know, I know you've been on so many shows and talking about terrain theory and helping bring the public up to speed on the science. I'm curious to know about your path and your background. Were you always kind of speaking against consensus reality? Were you always poking at fictions pervading the medical space? Uh, no, not at all. In fact, um, I, you know, there was the sort of spark of that type of outlook that was always in me because I always wanted to understand things at the system level, mm -hmm. right? So I was never kind of satisfied to just take this little bit of isolated information and just accept it as is. I wanted to know where did it come from? What's the context? You know, what's the organizational structure? Mm -hmm. So as I was pursuing my interest in medicine and healing and biology and developing that career. And I, you know, had a sort of a convoluted path because I did a number of things before I ultimately went to medical school. I learned more and more uh, through my experience. So I experienced something like, for example, when I was um, right before I went to medical school, I was a physician assistant and I worked in hematology and oncology. And in the hospital where I was, the drug representatives were very influential. Like they were cool, young people, good looking people. They, you know, invited us out to meals all the time. They paid for drinks, you know, and it was that kind of thing. And I, I was a bit naive to the social reciprocity and how that can influence doctors prescribing practices and such. And I, but then I saw evidence of that. Like there was this one really popular guy and um, he represented this drug Trovan, which was an antibiotic. And I saw everyone prescribing it left and right. And it turns out that that was actually the drug that they had tested illegally in Africa and it caused a bunch of deaths. And this is all, you can find this in mainstream media headlines <clears throat> uh, if you want to investigate it further. But that was, you know, the drug they were promoting at the time. <laughs> so as I got a little bit experience, and at first I kind of, you know, I went to the dinners and I got free meals. I even did one talk for that was, I was paid by a drug company. And this is what really started me waking up in that respect because I put all this work in to develop my own presentation on the topic. And it was about um, a disease called, um, anemia of chronic disease, which people with kidney failure and other ailments develop chronic anemia. And I wanted to just present the whole topic. But of course, the company made a specific drug that you could be used for that. And of course, I would teach about that because it was, it did work, uh, at least as they stated, right. But right before the talk, the drug rep sent me a set of slides and wanted me to deliver those slides, which were marketing material. <laughs> and so that kind of led me to look at the issue. And then I realized how influential it was and that, uh, you know, other people started realizing it too. And there were reforms in the pharmaceutical industry, but I kind of had a, a series of experiences like that during my medical training and various career, um, you know, interim careers that I was in over the years. 
So I realized that people didn't get better from chemotherapy, but it made them worse, or even blood transfusions, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, in psychiatry, of course, I realized that psychiatric medications were effective, and even the training that I got at Duke, we analyzed journal articles and clinical trials, and we all reached those conclusions. And then I saw the hypocrisy because on the one hand, we're meeting and criticizing and saying antidepressants don't really work, but then we go into the clinic and everyone's telling us to prescribe antidepressants. <laughs> so, so it was a, you know, a series of things like that that led me to slowly back out of the system. And then in other areas of my life, certain personal events led me to inquire about things and question things like I had, you know, my when my brother died, for example, and uh, there were some other things that happened around that, that really led me to say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, because I had a friend who was influential, and he was telling me that the climate change narrative wasn't really accurate, and that it was kind of really going against uh, the good nature of, of uh, human beings. And I was very skeptical because I was like, had been a climate activist for 20 years, you know, since college, because I had a genuine concern. I wanted nature to be preserved and not poisoned. But of course, I was led to the incorrect belief that it was carbon dioxide was the cause of the demise of nature when really it's all of the, you know, chemicals and um, radiation that's being spread um, carelessly around. So... When I got to that point, I said, all right, I'm going to research this in earnest and I'm going to prove my friend wrong. I'm going to show him that climate change is real. (laughs) And I was astonished. It really shook me up because I not only did I come to the opposite conclusion, but I actually couldn't find one shred of credible scientific evidence. There was computer modeling, but that's not scientific. That's I, I had actually earlier in my career done computer modeling for drug design. And uh, I knew that it could easily be tweaked to show anything. (laughs) You know, you could show that table salt will, uh, you know, cure diabetes with molecular modeling. So um, once I had that kind of overhaul, and then I branched out to researching other areas and including uh, medicine, you know, in a different way, And that's what really turned me around to start questioning everything. And, you know, I've gone deep down the rabbit hole in many, many areas and have learned that most, if not all, of the narratives, theories, and paradigms that we are uh, indoctrinated with from our childhood and throughout our lives, through our culture and our compulsory schooling system, that they're almost all false. Amen. And I'm, I'm curious because you gave us a bunch there. And I know that a lot of that modeling comes out of MIT. And I believe you did your undergraduate at MIT. Is that where you kind of clued in? Because it seems like so many of these models upon which we're basing these emergency procedures are, are coming out of MIT. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I studied the, you know, now the, the department is called the Department of Biology, but it's not It's really molecular and cell biology, which is really what we're talking about, because that's all the things, you know, antibody tests, PCR tests, um, gene therapy, all of that is is not from really biology where you look at whole organisms. It's when you look at cells and molecules. And that's what they teach at MIT, because that's related to technology. And, uh, you know, MIT has a lot of questionable influences and where their financing comes from. And I don't want to, you know, necessarily get into that. But to be honest with you, MIT really prepared me to recognize these flaws because their educational model is all about problem solving. They don't hold your hand at all. They give you dense, difficult material. They expect you to learn it with very minimal help, mostly on your own, and to solve these problems that are very difficult. And when you learn how to do this kind of problem solving, it makes you see all the details and the levels and you get very good at logic and reasoning. So I simply applied the same types of analytical thinking to these scientific paradigms to see the falseness in them. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
But you're right because much of the much of what MIT is really oriented is technology, which is different from science. Science is the study of understanding the natural world. Mm. Okay, but it doesn't have to produce any fruits. The fruit is the understanding or knowledge, mm -hmm. and that leaves out a step of accountability because they don't have to actually build something or develop something in the real world that works based on what they learn about how the real world works, mm -hmm. right? Because that's a separate field, engineering. And engineering is where you have a problem or a task that you want to do and you apply technology, not necessarily science, but technology to the problem and you design and you test and you have trial and error to solve the problem. And that has built in accountability because you make a device and if the device works, then you succeeded. Right. So later, many years later, when I've kind of looked at the comparison of these two subjects, what you can see is that various devices that are built that actually work, that are technology, they're supposedly based on a scientific theory. But if you look at how the device is actually designed and put together the and talk to the engineers, you realize that they didn't need the scientific theory at all to make the device work. Mm -hmm. And they can't explain how the theory applies directly to the device. Mm -hmm. In fact, don't even, like for example, for a nuclear reactor, they don't even use the equations from nuclear physics to design and build a nuclear reactor. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> so, so, you know, MIT is really based on technology, and if you take the bi biology, the science of, right, um, and then take the techniques from that and use it to build things, that's really the kind of way that they teach biology at MIT, which is very different from a purely scientific uh, way to study biology. And, and that's why, you know, they end up being, um, because they're, you know, leading place they attract uh, some of the top thinkers and talents and of course they have all the money because all the big corporations have relationships with their many of the faculty do consulting for them and that's why you see all these connections even you know Bill Gates working with MIT professors and uh, you know the, some of those professors I had classes with them like David Baltimore and Harvey Lodish mm -hmm. um, you know that have written the, the the standard textbooks on cell biology and molecular biology um, but, uh, so when I was there, I learned how to do some of that research and, or really kind of more engineering. And then I did internships in the biotech and it was at, um, I believe, uh, Biogen, uh, where I did my first internship in that industry where I helped them develop their molecular modeling department. Oh, and cool. it was just because I was, you know, like, at MIT, they expect you to know everything. So I knew a little enough about computers. I could do a little bit of programming. Um, you know, I could do bench science. I understood math. So it, when I was at Biogen, you have a bunch of biologists or, and chemists who are in the lab, and they don't, they don't know that much about computers. And I just saw they were just using it to make pictures. And I'm like, oh, this thing could be used for drug development. Like, that's what it's, what it's designed for. And so... I just took the initiative and they let me run with it. And now, you know, now they have a whole department doing that. <laughs> That's awesome. You had such a, such a major impact there. Well, I mean, maybe I just got in early or whatever, but it, it taught me a valuable lesson. I think that's the most important, which is what computer modeling is. And, and that's come up so much in the last two years because you have really what they say is the genino, genome, the genetic sequence of the virus is just a computer model. It's not it's not really in reality at all. Right. And also the predictions about the mortality that produced the fear, which made everybody, you know, lock themselves away. Right. That also was computer models. And we see, you know, how false those predictions were. So I had that knowledge to instantly know as soon as I heard computer model, what that means and to not pay it, that it could be used as a tool of manipulation very easily. Yeah. 
Yeah, for sure. And it's great that you that you were there, you had the, the practical experience. And it sounds like the difference is like taking scientific postulates from the realm of abstraction and then taking them into actual application and that that may be where a lot of the breakdown lies. Is that correct? Well, it's even deeper than that because so in the field of science, right? If you're if you're talking about real science, okay? Because these days a lot of things are called science that don't really fit what it is. But what it yeah. is is it's where you can use the scientific method to answer questions about cause and effect relationships of natural phenomena. Mm -hmm. So why do clouds form? Oh, I think it's caused, you know, by, um, you know, people snoring in their sleep. Okay, so that's kind of a ridiculous hypothesis, but you could design an experiment using the scientific method and test it. And then you'd find out that that's actually not the cause. Right. But, you know, we can look at, um, you know, illness. That's a natural phenomenon or uh, could be man-made also, by the way. <laughs> Probably a lot of it is. But we can still use the scientific method to apply to that. Mm -hmm. And what you but what you have at present is you have what I would call consensus, you know, pseudoscience or scientism, mm -hmm. which is that the authorities of the field. So it could be professor so-and-so, or it could be, you know, director of, you know, so-and-so government agency, who is the scientific authority. Mm -hmm. They put out a statement and say, oh, all scientists in this field agree that this is the truth, right? But that has nothing to do with the scientific method. In fact, that's a logic fallacy called appeal to authority. Right. Um, you know, that those logic fallacies go all the way back, uh, you know, to Socrates and Aristotle. Yeah. And I forget which one of them originally wrote about it. But, uh, you know, you get the point. It's not new information. Right. And it's what propaganda. science, <laughs> science, it has its own built in, you know, system where you apply the scientific method to show a cause and effect relationship. And if you do that and 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 it's and no one can falsify your findings and your hypothesis right in your then it becomes a theory mm -hmm. and then you know it's useful and we can talk about it and you know people have to accept it they don't agree because it's how nature works right right it's not so it, it doesn't matter if you agree with it or how many scientists agree it's like the proof is well if that's the way nature works then that's the way nature works right so right. you know of course when it comes to illness if they say you know um that it's caused by this or that well you know you have to use the scientific method and show that and you know nature will tell us through those experiments if that's actually the case uh because it doesn't matter what we think or agree about it's you know, that's the way to show a cause and effect relationship. And, it, and it's pretty simple. It doesn't require a lot. You just have to have an independent variable that that's the cause and you have your dependent variable. That's the effect. Mm -hmm. And then you design an experiment to, you know, to, sh to where you take the independent variable and you apply it and see if the dependent variable occurs mm -hmm. and if there's a relationship. And then you also do a control experiment where you do the exact same experiment, but you remove just the independent variable. Mm -hmm. And that is the, the simple method, right? So of course, there's one caveat that in order to do that, you actually have to have the independent variable, right? That's the cause. Right. So it has right. to be real. So I can't say the cause of thunderstorms are Martians operating a Martian technology. Right. Because I haven't shown Martians, right. so I can't test it. Right. Right. But if I say that it's from, you know, uh, air traffic control broadcasts, well, that is a real thing. So it's not natural, but nonetheless, I can test it. Right. Yeah. So you had started to clue into some fishiness going on with pharmaceutical manipulation when you were phys physician's assistant. And I can also, um, I can attest to that because I waited tables across from Cedar sinai in Los Angeles at a very, very expensive restaurant called Luke. And I worked the lunch shifts and every lunch shift was tables of pharmaceutical representatives and interns and doctors. And it was every conversation, how can we get your people to prescribe more of this? And it was like a $400 lunch 
a $500, like literally every day. So I, I mm -hmm. saw that firsthand myself. So after you had that experience, then you went to medical school, then you pursued this career. At what point did you start to notice the scientific method taking a back seat to these false authorities telling us what we're supposed to believe? Well, you know, in medical school, they the scientific method doesn't apply at all. So oh. the the way that they teach uh, medicine is very different from how they teach science. Mm -hmm. So, for example, when you know at MIT, if I took a basic biochemistry course, I had to demonstrate that I understood how the reactions worked. Mm -hmm. Right. Like so that if I were a scientist, I could then go and design experiments to find out more information about about how the biochemistry of the body works. Okay. It was that, you know, so that's, you know, true understanding of the material right. in medical school. What they wanted us to do is memorize the reactions and the names of all the enzymes. And they have very long names, you know, like uh, glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase and pyruvate kinase and all these, you know, and um, they wanted you to be able to just basically spit them back at you, right? Answer on a multiple choice test, which one is which. So they're teaching it basically like you teach spelling. Mm -hmm. And there's no level of understanding of what's behind. So the doctors, once they complete this education, they have hands-on skills, but they're essentially just told how, what treatments to apply to all the situations. And they have really no tools of understanding to go and evaluate what's the true cause of illness, what, what, how this new treatment's coming out. How do I evaluate if, if I need to change to this treatment or, you know, do the old one? How do I pay attention to my own results and outcomes so that I confirm that what's in clinical trials is, you know, is accurate because that, that has a whole, you know, set of problems. Were you asking these questions in medical school? Were you frustrated by the way they were educating you? Well, the, you know, quite frankly, there's not enough time to consider those types of things because there's such a volume of information you have to master. Um, and then they frequently have uh, examinations um, that you really just, and, and also, you know, it's like you're excited about your initiation into this profession and you made a bunch of new friends and you're all, you know, have study groups and what happens is, is that there are all these like cheat study guides mm -hmm. where they give you mnemonics to remember things and just give you, you know, what they call pearls. Like these are the things most likely to be on the test or, or the most likely for the, your supervisor to, to pimp you on because they have all these hazing rituals like pimping. Like for example, when you go to do your surgery rotations in your third year, you know, everyone wants to like get in there and actually do part of the surgery and, you know, learn about it and see if it's for them. And, you know, it's exciting and such. And what they do is, is that they bring in a group of students to a case and like then the surgeon like asks these really difficult questions about anatomy or whatever. And, you know, if you get it right, then they let you participate, you know, as an underling. And if you don't get it right, they shame you. <laughs> Literally? Pretty much. Okay. Wow. You know? wow. I mean, like, for example, uh, this happened to me one time where I, and I don't, this wasn't even based on me answering a question wrong. This is just because I was a student. You know, I asked if I could scrub into a case and, and, uh, and then I scrubbed in and I came to uh, the operating table. And as soon as I got there, the surgeon was like, you contaminated, go re-scrub. And I was I didn't touch a thing like, right. It was just hazing, make me go through the whole ritual again, come back in. And then of course, all he had me do was, was, uh, the manual labor. Like he had me hold his retractors that required for, you know, an hour and a half straight, like requiring, uh, pulling as hard as you can. Whoa. So all that kind of stuff, uh, goes on. Okay. And when, so when did you start to wake up to the level of corruption and deception? Was it before all the crazy stuff happened in, in 2020? Were you, were you already clued Absolutely. in at that point? Okay. Absolutely. So 
you know, it was through my experience practicing medicine and it happened gradually. You know, I realized that psychiatric medications were not only not helpful, but harmful. And so okay. I was working in a sort of setting with, with teenagers who had serious behavior problems and or like criminal type charges, you know, juvenile delinquent situations. And I just basically was tapering all of them off their medicines, mm -hmm. uh, started to work with nutrition. And, um, you know, even earlier in my career, I realized this and I was just tapering people off, minimizing drugs, trying to engage them in real change process. Then, you know, I discovered Kelly Brogan's work and then I started integrating uh, nutrition and cleansing. And then I went full-fledged into studying natural healing once I realized, you know, that really across the board with uh, allopathic medicine, they, they don't really have anything to offer with except for a few, you know, very like uh, some severe trauma and reconstructive surgery, you know, and maybe one or two isolated situations here and there. But um, so I had to look outside and uh, I had been, you know, that was after I had already challenged several other things um, in my life. And I realized I just couldn't ethically, you know, do that kind of work. And I was phasing completely out in, in my official work. All I was doing was removing harm. Um, I did some expert witness work. Uh, and then once the pandemic happened, then, you know, it was sort of all over, uh, when I refused to wear a mask and my, you know, the place that I was contracting with didn't like my videos and, <laughs> Uh, public persona, even though they were very happy with me reducing the medications because it cost them a lot less money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I, you know, so it was really just a kind of a gradual process, but I realized through my own experience, not just from evaluating the, the medical literature, that it simply didn't work. Right. It wasn't helping people and it was causing a lot of harm. Like I realized I had many patients who had suicidal thoughts caused by antidepressants. And I, right. I didn't never believe that at first. And then just time after time again, when I took them off, they went away. And were you receiving pushback at this point in your practice where you started to move more into nutrition, less the pharmaceuticals? Well, you know, so there were some things that I could do in a conventional clinical setting, which is, you know, I could taper off medications and they were very skeptical at first, but once they saw that the kid's behavior didn't get worse, it actually improved. They were all behind me. It's like better behavior, less expensive. But then when I tried to initiate a dialogue with the dining um, management, mm -hmm. because they were feeding just a horrible, horrible you know, like tons of sweet drinks, punches and juices, you know, like refined starch, white pasta, white bread, you know, like tons of sweet stuff, you know, like those, the, their idea of fruit is, you know, fruit and corn syrup, <laughs> right? So, right. so we could have made huge progress there, but they, you know, they, they were resistant. They thought, oh, well, gosh, it's going to be way more expensive. Right. Right. For example, even though they had farmland, they could have grown raise their own food, you know, right on the, because the, they're in this beautiful pastoral campus. So there, there was a limitation, you know, I couldn't have kids doing enemas or bentonite clay baths or things like that, you know, it was, they wouldn't, um, they would have, and also like when you're practicing medicine under a license, you make a contract with the state, you know, they, they, they give you the, the privilege to actually break the law. Right. You can uh, poison people. You can give them morphine, all kinds of stuff. Right. You can you can cut them open. Right. Which would be assault uh, or right. worse if you weren't didn't have a medical license. Right. Right. So but that license then comes with obligations mm -hmm. that you have to follow the standard of care. And the standard of care is not actually what helps people. So I had to walk a fine line since I was doing it under my license in a licensed facility with public financing. Right. Um, and I realized that I couldn't sustain that, that all I could do in that setting was minimize harm. And it was accepted and even supported in that local environment for a period of time. Mm -hmm. But I knew if I told the full truth, 
that it wouldn't be looked upon very kindly and I'd have to go really out of the public into the private to do the right thing um, as far as what I learn is the truth about biology and healing. Mm -hmm. Are you still licensed? No, no, I, um, you know, basically just let it lap, lapse, sorry, when the renewal date came up um, in uh, December of 2020. Mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, it, it's actually a tricky thing. They don't give you an easy way to get out of it. Like if uh, Dr. Tom Cowan tried to um, just rescind or hand back his license and uh, they, they uh, said it had to be, he had to use the word surrender, right? Um, even though there was no disciplinary action or anything, he just said, I don't want to be licensed anymore. So... So I thought that the easiest way would just be to let it expire and not renew it. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, and then I do everything outside of the public, you know, in the private, I work uh, to teach people in a consultation service. But what I do there is has nothing to do with the practice of medicine. It's totally, you know, separate thing. And I needed to make that clear delineation that I'm no longer a, you know, doctor practicing medicine. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't, you know, I mean, I never... I never do the things that I did as a doctor. I don't uh, use a stethoscope or do a physical exam or order or look at labs or prescribe treatment or make diagnoses or anything like that. I help people understand the root cause of their health problems. Mm -hmm. I teach people a variety of natural uh, methods that I've learned uh, in my study that can be helpful. And then I give them that information and then they embark upon their own personalized healing process. That sounds so, so much more empowering versus Absolutely. just abdicating our, our authority to a doctor to tell us what to do. Absolutely. I mean, my, you know, firm belief is that um, it's our individual responsibility to take care of our own health and that, of course, of our of our family, especially our offspring, because we brought them into the world. Yeah. But it's not anyone else's uh, responsibility. Uh, you know, for example, I remember having a discussion uh, several years ago when I started looking at things this way uh, with someone who is a big proponent of socialized medicine, you know, healthcare for all for free, like, right. like right. the systems they have in Europe and Canada. And, uh, you know, so I brought up an example. I said, okay, you know, let's say that someone decides that they're going to uh, live a very unhealthy lifestyle because they enjoy it, it's convenient, whatever, and they're going to eat tons of junk food and get fat and get diabetes. And then they're going to, you know, instead of reversing the diabetes by going back to a healthy diet, they're going to take medicine, which is expensive. And so I said, you know, do you feel that it's your and my responsibility to pay for that medicine for that person's individual choices about their lifestyle. Because that's, you know, even diabetes, even among mainstream medicine, you know, type 2 diabetes we're talking about here, everyone acknowledges it's, it's caused by a poor diet, right. right, even in mainstream medicine. So that means that all the person has to do is change their diet to reverse the condition. Right. But that's not what the doctors tell them to do. No. <laughs> right. They prescribe them drugs. So why should, you know, why should I pay for their drugs and why should they even receive them for free? They should have to pay out of their own pocket, you know, for those things. If, if they, if they think that that's a way, a healthy way to live, you know, um, everybody should make their, their own choices about that. But, you know, in my experience, when people actually do something actively to reverse diabetes that in three weeks, I've seen numbers, you know, many individuals completely reverse diabetes. Mm -hmm. All right, can you hear me? I can hear you, yes. All right, I don't think I can get my uh, video working again. So something, uh, I'm using this uh, program to run it and it crashed and I think I need to update it and fool around with it. So if you wanna do audio for the rest, I can definitely do that um, or that's perfect. Uh, reschedule. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do audio if that, does that work for you? Sure. Okay, cool. Is um, the levels in okay oh, good? Because it's a different mic and sound system. Yeah, the levels are good. You sound great. Okay, this is my radio mic. <laughs> okay, awesome. I'm glad you have multiple mics. <laughs> Me too. 
Um, so the last bit I heard before we, we had our tech difficulties was about people healing diabetes within three weeks because of dietary changes. And I'm, I, I mean, I do feel like this, this push away from personal responsibility towards more of an infantile dependency upon authorities and systems is certainly part of why we're in this predicament. I know for me at the time when they were, you know, making their recommendations about face coverings and staying inside and whatnot, I, I thought like, well, you know, for at least more than 20 years, I wake up with the sunrise, I take cold showers, I do oil pulling, I bounce on my rebounder, I meditate, I, you know, drink lemon water. Like, who are these people to tell me how to handle my own health? Like, I'm on top of it. You know, so for me, that was just a giant disconnect. Like, I'm definitely not going to be taking recommendations from the, the pill pushers. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I've always been the kind of man who wants to be able to do things for myself. And I think we really, if we become dependent, there are many pitfalls. Like one thing is it's very easy to be taken advantage of. Right. And you might be able to see how a contractor repairing your home might take advantage of you, but you would be clueless about how a doctor or a surgeon might be taking advantage of you. But the same kind of thing goes on. I mean, any business uh, can be corrupted. Totally. And I, you know, I, I would like to steer us into kind of the, the circuit, but while we're still on the topic, like, how does that line up with the Hippocratic Oath? You know, like when you're speaking to your colleagues and you know that they've taken this oath to do no harm, and at the same time, you know that they are harming, like, how does that line up? How does that work? Well, you know, there, so first of all, there is really no standard uh, translation even of the Hippocratic Oath, and it's not really, it's more of a ceremonial oath that at graduation from medical school, and I don't even know if they do this at, universally at all medical schools, but, you know, you, somebody recites this and you say yes, and it's, you know, just like uh, not necessarily something that people take seriously. I mean, look at wedding vows. You know, essentially, it's the same kind of thing as that a priest says them, you repeat them or, you know, whoever's officiating the ceremony. And then look what happens. People don't honor them. We have a divorce rate of higher than 50%, you know, but you took an oath that you were going to stay with that person until death do us part. So, you know, that's, uh, it's not integrated into the culture of medicine throughout mm. the educational process. It's paid lip service to in a ceremony. But also the part about do no harm, you know, there is debate whether that even comes from Hippocrates, but I can tell you that in casual conversations that I was privy to among doctors in training and also in practice, they pretty much say, okay, you know, first do no harm, but then after that doesn't work, then you can do harm. So oh, wow. you know, what do you do second? It only says first, but if you look further at what Hippocrates really said, he talked about nutrition, you know, let medicine be thy food and thy or thy food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. And also followed that up with a much less known quote about actually fasting or not eating food is also a very important treatment. Yeah, those so things. So those aspects from Hippocrates are never discussed at all in medical training or education. Interesting. I love that you that you shared the example of the wedding vows because I, I've been in the practice for years since writing an unpublished book about this, of asking people who got married what their vows were. And I would say 99.9% .9 of the time, they don't even remember. It's really, I so guess irrelevant. They didn't watch enough TV to memorize uh, the TV wedding script. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I'm curious about your experience on quote unquote the circuit. You know, it's this thing that has emerged. It started with, you know, as as I understood it, very well-meaning, well-intended truth tellers, um, you know, wanting to kind of fill in a gap that the the corporatized mainstream media was not filling in terms of educating people, but it seems, and I know you're much closer to this, but it seems like some bad actors some controlled opposition, some weirdness has kind of slipped in. I'm, I'm wondering about your experience with that. Well, you know, 
um, men and women are individuals and everyone has their own abilities, skills, um, you know, intelligence and their own motivations, goals and inspirations. And whenever there is something that questions the mainstream, of course, that there's going to be individuals from the mainstream power structure who infiltrate that. Right. And this, you know, there's many things written by that about that, but you know, it's a it's a classic um, strategy. In fact, even the Soviet, uh, the KGB, um, had policies like that where they tried to in, infiltrate American organizations and, and institutions for that purpose. So there's lots of precedent for this, and I, I don't know who you know who has what intentions, but what I see is just different discussions going on, and what I'm interested in is discussions related to getting at one the truth of what's going on and two what are the you know righteous actions to take to preserve and defend the freedom pursuit of truth um, and you know prosperity of individual men and women and so people who are not having that discussion but instead who talk about, um, you know, things like strategies, you know, how do we convince people or politicians to do things, uh, even if we have to be dishonest or misrepresent ourselves, or if you use personal ad hominem attacks to challenge someone that you disagree with, instead of talking about, you know, the issue, like, for example, I've seen many, many journalists and bloggers criticize the main points that have come from me and some people that I collaborate with, like Tom Cowan and, and Sam and Mark Bailey, about our criticism of the science of virology. Mm -hmm. But I never see in these writings evidence that they've actually thought about and considered our scientific criticism of this evidence. And there's no um, production of any counter evidence that would be part of a rational, uh, factual discussion. Um, instead, there are all kinds of bluster and accusations or saying, oh, we are ruining and polarizing or sabotaging the, the freedom movement or that, you know, how could a hundred years of science be wrong and things like that, that have nothing to do with the criticisms um, of the you know prevailing paradigm that we've put out there trying to seek the truth about nature and science and health mm -hmm. so i don't engage in those discussions um, but i do appreciate bringing more attention to this underlying subject because it, it's critical uh, because it is the the basic underlying cause of everything that we've currently experienced there are going to be you know, new operations like we see a lot of things shifted towards the climate change, uh, you know, air quote crisis. Right. And so there's going to be need to be new education. And that's why I believe it's so foundational, because if we can see that these underlying foundational, you know, quote unquote theories that we have accepted as fact our whole lives because we've been told that it's factual, if we can see that one of those is actually completely wrong, then it'll be easier to see that another one is also completely wrong. And as we move forward, the powers who are trying to manipulate and direct us will be much less powerful because we'll be able to use our discernment and see through the narratives and see that, the, that they create crises out of nothing simply for the purpose of generating fear so that they can take advantage. And they even say this outright, right? How many of them have quoted the statement, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste. Right. Now, they don't say the whole truth that they manufacture the crisis um, so that, that they can use it for those purposes, but they're pretty open and honest that they're going to use it. And so that should make everyone very skeptical of any crisis w whatsoever. I mean, now we have a political crisis that is having a potentially genocidal effect on Europe this winter. And this is all created by the governments that they, they did not have to uh, support one side or the other, and they could have maintained their access to 
natural gas resources and let the people who are having the argument solve it and resolve it for themselves. Thanks so much for tuning in to the first half of my interview with Dr. Andrew Kaufman. It's always an honor to have you tune in to Word Up with Danny Katz. We really value your support, your ear, your attention, and your inclination to hit that subscribe button and to like and share this and all of my episodes. If you have not yet, nabbed yourself copies of my book, I'm going to take this opportunity to urge you to grab Word Up Little Languaging Hacks for Big Change, which is available as a print book, as an audiobook, as well as a Kindle. And as long as you're in a reading mood, you'll probably also want to pick yourself up a copy of my illustrated guide to propaganda, Pop Propaganda, which features 37 tools techniques and tricks that the social engineers use to attempt to manipulate us, along with 37 fabulous illustrations of each of these persuasion techniques. Duly educated, we are then resourced to not take the bait and to unify and course correct our earthship together. Pop propaganda is appropriate for teens and grown-ups alike that along with Word Up, um, they're both on sale at amazon.com. If you are one of the few people who are not feeling aligned with buying books from Amazon, uh, deep bow. I so respect that. Feel free to message me through my website to arrange for private purchase. Okay, thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you over on Patreon and Locals for the second half of my conversation with Dr. Andrew Kaufman. Have a swell day. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode of Word Up with Danny Katz. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. And as you are inspired to learn more about my quantum languaging work, about my books, my homeschool courses, my transformational and empowered badassery coaching, check out my website, dannykatz.com, as well track all of my latest content on my Locals page, dannycats.locals.com. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you soon, tribe.